Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. We have got the girls team lined up for you, Radio Radiotherapy Girls team, hello Woo-hoo. Trina Wells. Morning. <laughs> hello, Girls Day. And Miss Perineum. <laughs> Isn't it a good morning? And we have got live in the studio with us our two guests. We've got Dr. Daryl Efron, and um, which is wonderful. He is world famous and respected throughout Melbourne and Victoria. He's a pediatrician. I've had a pleasure to know you for many years, Daryl. Mm-hmm. And um, he is from the Children's Hospital and MCRI, and it's good to see you again. Nice to be here. Thanks, Susan. Yeah, and um, thanks for coming. And Daryl is going to talk to us today about medical cannabis and its use in um, a range of uh, uh, situations for kids and a new study that you have uh, just started in using medical marijuana in palliative care and paediatrics. Yep. And um, so looking forward to that a bit later in the show. And we have also got in the second half um, wonderful clinical psychologist Claire Finkelstein. And Claire has a particular interest in working with people with eating disorders and body image concerns. She's actually going to be talking to us about research into how mind-expanding magic mushrooms, together with psychotherapy, could ease body image disturbance. Um, Yeah, the emotional distress that can keep people stuck in eating disorders. It's a pretty funky show. Mm. It is a grooving radiotherapy. <laughs> <laughs> but first up, let's get to some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You want me to go first, don't you, Cyber Sue? Go on, trainer. All right, it's me. It's training wheels. Good morning. Um, uh, There was a big event last night. Really? It was my sister-in-law's birthday. (laughs) Happy birthday. Shall we sing? Should we sing live? (laughs) No, No, don't do it. Don't do it. No, no. no, it was the election. It was the state oh, election. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think there was sort of a bit of toing and froing in the media leading up to the election, but we ended up with sort of a, a parliament that's looking quite similar to the one we had before. There's an expanded crossbench, which is always good news for me. Mm. I love I love that. I love the bit, bit of juiciness. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to, given it's a health show, just remind listeners what Labor has promised under the Land- Andrew, the Landrews, the Landrews, Andrews, Andrews government. <laughs> <laughs> now that we've got another four years, what can we expect? So their plan is to build or upgrade at least seven hospitals, mm-hmm. including Good. a billion dollars for a new Maroondah hospital. Remember, there was a bit of a yeah. snafu with the renaming of mm. Maroondah Hospital. Mm. Anyway. From someone who's worked in that hospital, I can tell you it definitely needs the upgrade. Great, so. happy days. Yeah. That's good. Eight hundred and fifty-five million dollars in upgrades to the Northern and. Mm. Over $600 million for a new West Gippsland hospital. So lots of money for new hospitals. Uh, A $5,000 sign-on bonus for nursing graduates. So a little bit of a carrot for people graduating nursing, I suppose. I think I'll re-sign on. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Cyber suit, can you do that? Just retrain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, maybe not. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder if it's retroactive. And it's not in their, like, direct health thing, but they're – 
sponsoring a whole bunch of TAFE places and so that will also the junior levels of nursing will be part of that TAFEing course which is great yeah they've but I've got here that they're providing free nursing and midwifery degrees yeah. over the next two years it's mm. awesome it's mm. really good hopefully it works we desperately <laughs> um, need them absolutely there's a 200 million dollar um, funding plan to deliver a mental health and well-being leader in every primary school a fantastic idea they're promising to deliver free tampons and pads at 700 public sites across the state. Woo-hoo! Another excellent initiative. Mm, and $32 million in incentives for doctors who enrol in the GP training program. Mm. Isn't that nice? Um, and we've got some more greens. Oh, actually, it's only one more green now. It looked like it was going to be more. I sound disappointed. Am I letting my politics show? <laughs> no. It was one extra green elected. Um, and so, you know, the, the Labor government have got a ma- majority government, it looks like. Uh, but there's going to be another green in the in the house there. So hopefully yeah. they'll be able to talk about some of their promises, which is to free up hospital beds by providing more aged care and disability rehab beds, um, increasing public dental services, uh, investing $500 million to employ more free GPs in the postcodes that need them the most, free contraception, free hormonal implants, more psychologists. This is a lot, right? Yeah. 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 I so, think the, the focus on healthcare in the last two years has been really clear that you know, our, our health system has been struggling for a while and the more we can do proactively in the, in, in the short term, it's going to benefit everyone. It's the time for it, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So there we go. Wonderful. That's me. Well, my little news story for the day, I found this lovely paper which was actually published in the Lancet Age-Related Journal recently and it just brought a little smile to my face because I think it's something that lots of people get concerned about It was a study that looked at the association between social connection and cognition in an older community dwelling population. And it was looking, it looked at over, um, it was a meta-analysis of multi-cohorts. So we're looking at over 40,000 people in this study. And it looked at the fact that for the majority of the population, which was about 70 men and women, In terms of their cognitive decline, social interaction for community-dwelling adults was incredibly important in terms of preventing cognition decline as they aged. Mm. And that doesn't include things like having to be socially active every day, but going to the coffee shop and having a chat with your barista, saying hi to people on a walk. So relevant. Really little Mm. things can make a huge difference to how you actually function and feel Mm -hmm. connected to your community so my Sunday challenge for everyone Mm. is to say hi to someone you wouldn't normally say hi to (laughs) protect those brain cells because it's really nice to see that there's little things that we can do in our everyday life that actually really make a long-term difference. I think that's great and I think that's one of the um, reasons why sometimes we talk about regional communities and smaller communities being more connected and more healthy because they do have those more incidental connections they don't walk along the street with their head down they'll say hello exactly and And it was really interesting the thing that I got out of the paper is you'd assume that people who live with others are sort of semi-protected which they are but they can counteract that if you're a person living by yourself or um, not in a partnership that actually just community interaction with other people in a meaningful way for you so it can be going to the library and having a chat or going to the coffee shop was just as protective if you're doing it regularly. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. Do you ever notice, I notice that when I'm in my normal life, I kind of am the head down, striding forward, not talking to anyone, not even seeing anybody being busy. And when I'm on holiday, I could be in exactly the same place, but I'm saying hello to everybody. Oh, that's yeah, so totally. funny. <laughs> yeah. I suppose 
suppose you're not in a rush. Yeah, just a different kind of heads headspace. Mm. Yeah, just yeah. smile at someone on the street yeah. and say hi. You know, yeah. it makes people stay. Oh, that's a nice one, Perineum. Thank you. It is. It is. Well, um, my short story is um, uh, about COVID mm-hmm. and it's about long COVID. So earlier this month, Lung Victoria, Lung Foundation Australia, they did a large-scale report into the lived experience of uh, Australians going through the pandemic, and it highlighted a few um, significant gaps in service and information, in particular for people who um, have ongoing COVID-19 symptoms. And uh, granted, I didn't look into the uh, how they recruited uh, people into the study, but anyway, they had just under 2,200 people um, who responded, and an alarming number of them still had uh, symptoms a month later. And um, so Lung Foundation Australia have been turning their attention to um, the, the the future impact as COVID-19 causing a disability and what we should actually be doing about this as a society. Um, and it's not small numbers. Like, as of September, there was more than 10 million Australians who have reported a COVID-19 diagnosis. Um, and... In this report, three out of five of those had actually um, sought some kind of medical advice for the treatment of ongoing symptoms. Mm. Um, so there are a few of these people, and it may be that they're talking about the potential impact on our healthcare system that may be quite significant for some months to come. So what they've done is they've gone into 10 key recommendations, and I won't go into all of the recommendations. If you want to find out more, just Google lungfoundation.com.au and you'll see this roadmap for recovery in there. But um, of those recommendations, they include actually defining uh, what is long COVID, so having a definition for that so that we can do some data collection and research into it, um, which I think is a really good baseline and from that they can then determine the need for funding respiratory nurses specifically to uh, help these people and take the burden off general practice um, build uh, build care into long-term respiratory clinics rather than necessarily having to stand have standalone clinics and develop a national strategy into training and support um, for healthcare professionals mm-hmm. so I think this is it was an interesting kind of take from moving from this pandemic phase to this more uh, endemic Mm. moving forward type of phase. Yeah, how we're managing the kind of chronic impacts of it, I suppose, rather than that acute phase, yeah? Exactly right. Mm. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And we are back. Sorry, you go, Cyber Sue. So we are also back. <laughs> we were just saying what a joy it is. It's our first time probably that we've had all of us in the studio and nobody on Zoom. And we're just saying how lovely that is that we can all kind of chat to each other between hand and it's very nice. have the vibe going. <laughs> and anyway, Daryl Efron, welcome. Thanks. And how long ago you were on Triple R? You said you were in the last studio. Yeah, I've been on Triple R a number of times, but um, I haven't been to this studio, which is really nice. Well, it's wonderful to have you back. So even though that was well and truly before I was around, and Daryl is a very well-established part of the fabric of paediatric services in Melbourne. And um, no doubt there's going to be plenty of your kids or your kids' parents listening today. Oh, maybe. Hope so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So hello to all of you out there. <laughs> and um, as uh, today, as you know, we're going to talk about this world-class study um, that you are running looking at uh, medicinal cannabis to reduce the symptoms in children and adolescents undergoing palliative care. 
But um, I know that you have also looked at um, cannabis and a whole lot of other uses as well. So tell us a little bit about yourself and about that, about what what that is for you and why. Yeah, well, I'm a, a paediatrician and the majority of my work is, kid, is uh, treating kids with developmental and behavioural problems, what we call neurodevelopmental disorders, autism, ADHD, intellectual disabilities of different types, kids with different syndromes. Um, some of them have associated medical problems. Um, and um, a lot of our work, we do we, as paediatricians, we try to help kids and families with these sorts of issues in a whole range of ways. But um, one of the main tools in our toolkit, of course, is medication. So I've had a long-standing interest in um, psychiatric or psychotropic medications to help kids with these sorts of problems. Um, and some years ago, I developed an interest in cannabis really on the back of parents asking um, whether it's an option um, for kids to, um, to help with behaviours. And parents ask because they hear stuff on the internet and social media. Uh, and the that, blessing and the curse of modern medicine, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So, um, and that's, that's increased uh, you know, since I became interested. So it's now quite common for parents of kids uh, with these sorts of issues to say, you know, uh, can can do you think cannabis can help, particularly when they've been on other medications that have side effects? Because all the medications we use have side effects. Some of them pretty awful. For example, we use you know um, antipsychotic medications like risperidone in kids with autism quite a lot, and that causes weight gain and other possible side effects. Uh, the stimulants uh, for ADHD and so on they often cause side effects, antidepressants and so on. So it's, of course, parents would like to try things that they think might be more natural and have less side effects. So um, in parallel with that, in my world, in paediatrics, the epilepsy specialists were starting to use um, a type of cannabis. I'll talk about the types in a second to treat epilepsies, more certain types of epilepsies. And that's become um, more common for kids with really, really severe epilepsies. And it's the area where there's only really good scientific evidence from good research studies in a, in a couple of particular rare types of epilepsy. But it's been now being used in, in uh, broader types of drug-resistant epilepsies in kids. So, And I see lots of those kids uh, in parallel with the neurologist. So I became a bit familiar with it and, um, and then really got together with one of the epilepsy specialists and put, we, we pulled together a team of people to start to do some research in kids with uh, developmental problems. Um, I can keep rolling on or do you, you can interrupt and ask me questions. I'm wondering what sort of symptoms in particular you find cannabis helpful in, if it is helpful, in kids with these neuro neurodevelopmental conditions. Is it things like sleep or anxiety? or? Yeah, what? well, we really – it's a good question. We, we, there's no easy answer to that because at the moment we've only got anecdotal evidence. Um, so if I can zoom out just for a little bit, cannabis is used a lot in adults and you've probably discussed – that on this show before uh, and the main things is is um, chronic pain and um, anxiety different types of anxiety there's in fact parents who use uh, adults are accessing medicinal cannabis for a whole range of symptoms but they're they're the two biggest and so we think the anti-anxiety effect is probably the main mechanism by which it might help kids with I'm using kids with very severe behavior problems like severe aggression self-injurious behavior hitting themselves banging their heads against hard objects kids who gouge their eyes you know horrible stuff um, damaging property wow. unsafe at home some big teenage kids you know so and these are the kids we're poisoning with these other nasty drugs so in some of these kids uh, I've observed clinically uh, outside of research because we're 
a number of people are prescribing off-label before we've got research evidence. Mm. Um, in some of these kids, they're much more settled. Mm. Um, and we think that's by reducing anxiety, which in turn, which is an important driver for some of these difficult behaviours. Mm. Mm-hmm. But there's very little evidence at the moment. So we're doing a large study in kids with intellectual disability, most of which have autism, uh, but they don't need to have autism to be in this study. A large study um, that we're driving, and it's being run out of the Children's Hospital, Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne, uh, and also at Monash and Sydney, um, and that's in kids with they have to have a low IQ, intellectual disability, IQ below seventy, and they have to have very severe behaviours. And uh, we're using CBD, so there's people becoming familiar with these terms in the public. A lot of people are uh, in, uh, um, observing, but. The cannabis plant has hundreds of chemicals. The two main ones is THC, which gives you a high, and CBD, cannabidiol, CBD, which does not. Um, And in this study, we're just using CBD without THC. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. CBD has very few side effects, so that's one of the attractions. Parents are right in uh, thinking that in this case. Um, It can be a little bit sedating, but it's not very good for insomnia. It's not a very good sedative, and it can sometimes cause some diarrhoea or tummy upset, but effectively it's got virtually no side effects, even in, even in high doses, which we use in this study, as opposed to THC, which we're wary about because, of course, that mm. can potentially cause you know paranoia and even mm. psychosis. So, so do sometimes people, um, in a medicinal way, um, people are prescribed or using the THC aspect as well sometimes? Yeah, I think in adults, which I know less about, but um, THC, combinations of THC and CBD and, uh, in fact, other cannabinoids, cannabis plant chemicals are being used in combinations for most adult conditions I think although sometimes adults just use CBD as well in kids it's really quite interesting Um, parents have been asking for CBD increasingly as I was saying but I've had a trend in recent times I've noticed is that parents who've got a child on CBD oil and they're having some benefits are coming back after a while and saying, can we add in some THC, mm-hmm. which makes me nervous and I, you know, we don't really know what to do with that um, mm. be- because we, we, know so- we know virtually nothing about how that might work in kids. Can I ask a question about that with regards to um, uh, marijuana and generally being considered by many as a gateway drug to other drugs and whether that's something that's of concern with kids and the way that it's being used in a medicinal way? Is that something that people worry about? Um, I, I think so. Um, it's not so relevant to the kids I'm seeing with severe mm-hmm. developmental disabilities, uh, but I've got another study in kids with uh, teenagers with Tourette syndrome um, where we actually are using a combination of THC and CBD um, and that's one of a range of concerns we negotiated with our ethics committee, as you can imagine. Um, we think that there's quite a difference between recreational use of cannabis and prescribed use of cannabis where you're prescribing a certain dose. Of course, people can take higher doses than you prescribe, I suppose, but it's also very expensive, mm-hmm. so it's unlikely. So we, we think it's unlikely that the that people will become dependent on prescribed cannabis, but, of course, it is a possibility. It would also take the social engagement of the drug away if you're using it in a medicinal sense. It's not that sort of interaction that younger people seek in terms of group, you know, group cohort. I guess that would be one of the things that would diminish that effect. Mm-hmm. I have a quick question. I know that um, different parts of the cannabis plant have different half lives in their bo- in the body in the way that it's sort of produced. For kids, I know particularly because their metabolic sort of system is is different to adults, how is CBD sort of processed in the body and how long is it sort of in their system for compared to an adult 
population. Oh, pretty similar, I think. Um, kids, they're metabolised in the liver with the cytochrome P450 system for pharmacology geeks out there, which which is important to us as doctors because it's the same system that breaks down some other drugs that might have interactions, like some of the anti-epileptics, one, yeah. one called clobazam in particular, um, interacts. So if you if a child's on clobazam and you prescribe CBD, they become sedated because mm-hmm. the clobazam accumulates and some of the antidepressants are metabolised by the same system. But they're very sort of uh, lipid-soluble drugs. They accumulate in the, in, in the fat mm-hmm. and they stay for a long, long time, so they've got very, very long half-lives. Yeah. The other question I had, you mentioned before that it's your thinking around the use of it is mostly around the anxiety effects that it, it has. I guess in the sort of the more traditional sense of cannabis use, people used it for pain in cancer patients and things like that. And I guess my question is, with that, do you think actually what's happening with that pain is the fact that they're addressing the anxiety and the mental stress that pain is being you know plays on our system and therefore ramping down the pain effect and actually all along it's been working on the anxiety effect that that can have it's a a good question i I think you know anxiety mediates everything doesn't it and and pain's a great example so i'm sure that's an element Uh, i'm no expert in pain Um, i've been talking to the pediatric pain specialist it's a big part of pediatric practice now Mm. about potentially doing a study in pediatric pain there's some pretty good evidence i understand in adult chronic pain non-cancer pain more than cancer actually so I, th- I think there's thought to be a direct effect on pain, but you're right, the indirect effect mediated via anxiety is probably really important as well. Yeah, I know the paediatric population um, at Monash, the, the guys out there are definitely looking into it as part of their sort of practice. And I understand you're, this is sort of a good segue, I think, to how you're working with kids in palliative care and, and using cannabis in medicinal cannabis in that cohort. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, this is a study we're about to start. We just got through ethics, um, a pilot, small study to start with. Um, uh, so kids with uh, kids uh, who are in palliative care have a whole lot of symptoms that uh, some of which uh, might be helped by different types of cannabis and again in this study we're using THC and CBD in combination because pain is one of the most important symptoms Um, very painful muscle spasms dystonia um, is another one gastrointestinal upset uh, uh, including feed intolerance and, and abdominal pains um, and seizures. Um, the group we're doing this study in uh, non-oncological palliative care patients. So um, at our hospital, that's actually two thirds of the palliative care patients uh, are non don't have cancer. Mm. Um, so that's one reason we're doing it. But also, there's a group in Queensland who have a grant to do a study in oncological palliative care using cannabis. So ours will complement that. Mm. And we touched on it just briefly before, but I want to come back and get your um, insights into any of the major ethical kind of challenges of this type of research in kids. Well, look, there's major ethical problems, uh, well, potentially significant ethical problems with any drug trial in kids and particularly something... um, that uh, is, we, we know as little about as cannabis, but has um, you know potential recreational uses. We touched on before is 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 one of the ethical issues. I think one of the 
biggest ethical issues uh, at the moment is is the cost. Um, so, uh, and this is a real problem. Um, so, uh, medicinal cannabis is very complicated and um, time consuming to manufacture. I've been out to one of the very secretive manufacturing facilities, and, <laughs> mm. and it's actually true what these companies have been telling me for years. Mm. Um, so, it, it's very very ex- they're very very expensive products, and so a small bottle about thirty mils might cost two hundred and fifty dollars or even three hundred dollars. And how long would that last? And depending, generally how, speaking. The, how long it lasts depends on the dose they take, mm. but it might only, might only last a few weeks. Oh, wow. So mm. it's out of the range of almost everybody mm. at the moment. In mm. the, I've been involved in this area for five or six years now, I guess, and the price has come down a little but not much. Mm. So it's a real problem. Um, mm. So what happens in clinical practice um, is that families start with very low doses. It's, it's the only situation I'm aware of where um, – the parents don't care what dose I suggest to try. They always start with a much lower dose, hoping that a tiny bit might be helpful and, and that it will last longer because they couldn't possibly afford to mm. use the, the doses we're using in our clinical trials at this point. And is there any PBS funding for it? Well, there is just for the, the in, in paediatrics, just for those couple of types of uh, epilepsies for which mm-hmm. there's evidence. So mm-hmm. we're hopeful that if we get some evidence around kids with intellectual disabilities, autism, Tourette's and so on, mm-hmm. if there's scientific evidence to show that it's better than placebo, then we hope we can get them onto the PBS. Yeah, so it's a very small cohort where there can be some funding and otherwise the, the, these kids are just falling by the wayside as far as the funding goes. And I guess that makes me think like just around the corner from me in St Kilda there is a medicinal marijuana shop and there's a I believe there's a GP practice attached to it where they can go and prescribe. And is that something that, like, how does that fit in from your perspective? Oh, look, it's fascinating. These these sort of um, shops are springing up uh, in the suburbs around major centres in Australia, uh, as they have in Canada and other places around the world for, for much longer. Some of them are just dispensaries. There's one on Chapel Street that's a dispensary for cannabis, different types of cannabis products and paraphernalia to deliver it because it can be an oil or it can be gels or you can get hot, uh, dried flour and vape it. So they sell these vaping devices. And some of them, as, as you suggest, have, have doctors uh, who practice there. They call themselves cannabis doctors and cannabis clinics. Uh, my understanding is they're mostly GPs, although there are some specialists, but mostly GPs. And really, uh, they just dispense cannabis, no matter what the clinical problem is. Mm. They'll find a type of cannabis that they think might help. And mm. I find that pretty interesting. Uh, they're not specialists in a particular clinical area. They're not a cancer expert or an autism expert or something else. Mm. They're an expert in the drug. Yeah, right. So it's a complete kind it's of 180. Backwards. Yeah. yeah. Which kind of strikes me as kind of weird, yeah. And I know that, you know, the, the medical profession has historically there's always been an important distinction between the dispensary and the prescription, as in the, the same person doesn't profit from selling the medication as sure. who prescribes it and that's why mm. pharmacies and and clinical you know doctors are separated mm. um and i wonder if there's kind of a bit of a blurring going on there mm. Mm. i don't have strong opinions about it just putting that idea out there <laughs> it's so interesting isn't it and then that makes me think about um nimbin and you know accessing the drugs yourself and whether that's something that comes up for your families and think oh well I'll just go and get it from the bloke down the road or whatever and if that's a concern or what's your thoughts yeah, on that? Yeah so I've been hearing stories like that in fact uh, an anecdote a parent who 
who told me they were getting it from NIMB and got me interested in this area uh, many years ago, um, alongside, as I say, the paediatric epilepsy work. Um, so we know that some parents do. And in fact, we've surveyed, we've done a large survey of over 500 Australian parents of kids with neurodevelopmental disorders. Recently, it's under review. Um, and um, many of them told us that they... It, of those that had um, that had used medicinal cannabis for their kids, more had actually got it unregulated uh, on the internet than had had it prescribed, and it's mostly from in northern New South Wales. But um, it, you get these little bottles, um, and but the, the problem is there's no quality control, of course, so uh, you don't know what's in it. So I wouldn't recommend people do that. I mean, I can understand it, um, but I wouldn't recommend it. There has been a study actually out of Newcastle that analysed the contents of these bottles and compared it with what was written on the label, and there were in some cases there were large differences, for example, much more THC in some mm. cases than, than was advertised on the label. Mm. So... Uh, Which could be a big problem, I mean, arguably, if you're you're looking at that sort of difference, particularly in a paediatric cohort, with the differences between CBD and, and THC. Mm. You really don't want there to be contamination with THC if, if that's not what you're actually wanting for your, your paediatric kids. Just yeah. for those out there, can I ask you to explain, in terms of your palliated cohorts, how long are these kids in that environment? What's their sort of time frame in the hospital and what sort of things are we looking at? at this? Is it a short period of time? Are these kids, you know, going back home? Are they, uh, you know, spending time in the community as well? Yeah, I'm not a palliative kid physician but I have some patients in palliative care got a couple at the moment um, and the service is fantastic at our hospital just wonderful physicians who just absolutely I don't like the word holistic very often I think it's overused but these people mm. are genuine you know just fantastic physicians and, and wonderful people incredibly caring compassionate all the things you'd want um, so palliative care has shifted as you would know in adults and as well of course from helping people to die well to helping people to live well with a life limiting illness and it's about uh, symptom control is a lot of it mm. and it, it needs great skill uh, it's not good enough to be nice and kind although that's critical but it, it needs great skill with with a whole range of therapies including medication therapies as well and people uh, kids can be under palliative care for years and years and years i've got a patient who's a teenager who was referred to palliative care when she was in early childhood and it, it's very hard to predict how long kids will uh, live some uh, very often it's hard to predict how long they'll live so it can it's it's uh, it can be as a very short period of time yeah. if a child's uh, dying soon or it can drag on for a long time i think that's the misconception lots of people hear the word palliated mm. and you think it's such a short period of time does it really matter how much with these kinds of things True. but th with kids it's such a long time frame and if they can get the most out of their life and enjoy what they're doing and be part of their society and things and get that experience such a value for them if you want to find out so we will wrap the interview now but if you want to find out more daryl how do people find out more well i'll give the website f uh sorry the uh, email address for um our trials but um i should just i do want to stress that um the main trial we're running, this large one, we're recruiting 140 kids. Kids have to have an intellectual disability. It's not autism with high functioning. There is a study being run out of Monash, quite different, a small open-label study. It's not controlled in kids with autism. Um, 
but uh, across the IQ spectrum, but ours is only for kids with low IQ who have severe behaviour problems. And if anyone knows someone who might be interested, the uh, address is MC Trials, MC for Medicinal Cannabis, MC Trials at mcri.edu.au, and my wonderful trials coordinator, Caitlin, will uh, respond. That is wonderful. Thank you so much for being here with us. That was a great, great conversation, so thank you. And we will be back shortly with our next guest, and we are looking forward to hearing about um, magic mushrooms and eating disorders. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Welcome into the studio. This is um, clinical psychologist and PhD candidate Claire Finkelstein. And this is your first time on Triple R. Well, it's my second time. The last time was when I was reading the news as a journalism student and made a terrible error and was not invited back until now. So thanks for having me. No, well, we're welcome. And you're allowed to, you're allowed, so you are allowed to laugh in the station. So you are, you're in the right place now. Good. I feel like in a safe space. Thank you. Good. Yeah. So welcome. And um, so today you're here to talk, maybe rather than me tell everyone, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what your research is? Sure. So as you said, I'm a clinical psychologist and my background is in child and adolescent and family psychology. And through that, I became really interested in working with people with eating disorders and body image concerns. And, you know, eating disorders are notoriously tricky to treat. They're really complex combinations of psychiatric and medical conditions. And even when we can help people recover physically, often there is this persisting body image disturbance, which is incredibly debilitating and um, distressing for people and a major risk factor for relapse. So it was looking for better solutions for my clients to overcome this that led me to this project. And at the same time, I was really fascinated with the incredible research going on at the moment, looking into psychedelics and complex mental health conditions. So I uh, pursued, ruthlessly pursued my current supervisor, Professor Susan Russell, who is running psilocybin trials into depression with Sally Meikle, and Associate Professor Andrea Philippou, who is working in the eating disorder space. And we thought that there was really exciting potential for a new treatment looking at psilocybin psychotherapy for body image disturbance. And I think that's, I want to come back in a minute to why body image is the focus of this project. But I'm just going to ask a really obvious question. Can you tell us briefly what actually, like, you know, we've got LSD, acid, psilocybin, magic mushrooms. Is it the same thing or what's the commonality? But what are they broadly? Yes. So full disclosure, I am definitely not a psychedelic expert. I've come to this really fascinating space through my passion, I suppose, for eating disorders and looking for better solutions. But that being said, um, substances like LSD and psilocybin belong to a subgroup called hallucinogens, which impact on people's perception and their consciousness, alter their states of consciousness. And psilocybin is a psychoactive ingredient in psilocybin mushrooms, otherwise known as magic mushrooms. 
I have a quick question. My, I had to roll out my uh, year one, you know, psychology notes from this one. But I was looking at um, understanding because there was a period of time where sort of psychedelics, particularly in like the LSD space, was used for a lot of trials and people went through that for process for mental health. And there wasn't lots of really good evidence, but it's interesting to see now the different types and understanding the drugs better chemically, how we're sort of changing that. But I was looking at older papers and they were talking about the fact that psychedelics have on this concept of the ego and the fact that ego plays into um, our body awareness and our sort of sense of self. Can you talk to that a bit? It's very Freudian. Yeah. <laughs> I can, but I, I think your first year um, psychology notes sound much more exciting than my first year psychology notes. That's awesome. Yeah, so one of the – I guess we're leaping into why we think this could be really helpful here – but one of the um, key psychological mechanisms, I suppose, is that it can help people to um, deconstruct their narratives about themselves and their, their place in the world and help reconstruct those narratives in a much more helpful and flexible way. Hmm. Do you find that trauma plays into that in terms of past lived experience about how they've actually developed this sense of self and, and how they talk to themselves and, and piece that together? Absolutely. So if we think about people with body image disturbance, you know, their their bodies have... If I talk to my clients and say, when was the last time you felt okay, when you felt good or even just acceptable in your body, they will tell me they'll go back to early childhood. Maybe they can't even remember a time when they felt safe and comfortable in their bodies and their bodies have become a place that is no longer safe. It might be a place of trauma, um, certainly a place of severe pain um, and you know emotions like disgust and shame and anxiety and fear. And so absolutely... Um, we, we believe that things like psychedelics can help people feel reconnected to their bodies. One of the observed effects of um, psilocybin is an increased sense of connectedness on several different levels, and one of those is to the body. So we're hopeful that this can offer people an opportunity to build a safer um, relationship with their bodies and become more embodied. I think that's one of the things that um, I've worked a little bit in eating disorder space, being a gut pelvic floor physio, but often the thing that always surprises me is the misconception that the eating disorder behaviour and the concept around eating foods, people think that there's a vainness to it, but it's actually completely the opposite and it's that the only moment in the day where you feel like you've got some control over how you're existing is to, is to manipulate that that food environment and so it's really interesting to look at it from a different point of view because a lot of eating disorder treatment is around eating behavior and the foods that's consumed so it's really interesting to come at it from a different point of view yeah I think one of the most fascinating but most difficult aspects of eating disorders is how multifaceted they are and that you know they are primarily a neurobiological illness um, so that aspect is really important not to ignore but there is a, a huge component of um, mental health and trauma. Claire Finkelstein, we're talking to you about your PhD in eating disorders and um, using magic mushrooms, psilocybin, in psychotherapy. So, we, you know, we were just talking about medicinal cannabis and, and that's sort of used in a, 
everyday sense to manage symptoms. But I, I get the impression that it's a different approach here with the psilocybin. It's not something that your clients would be taking every day necessarily. It's in a in a controlled environment. Is that right? Yeah, that's a really great point. So it is a, um, I guess the defining aspect of this study is that we are really focused on the psychotherapy around the psilocybin experience. Um, and it, we're combining evidence-based treatment for body image disturbance with the to complement the effects of psilocybin. Mm. So there's a, a psychotherapy aspect that prepares people for this experience, both for the psilocybin, but also offers them insights and strategies to manage body image disturbance. Then there's the actual dosing experience. So there's going to be two dosing days. There's six to eight hours each and support for that process during the dosing. And then there's an integrative therapy component afterwards to help people make sense of their experience and really embed the learnings from that. While they're on the magic mushrooms during this sort of six to eight hour, are you having constant therapy? Are they experiencing this by themselves? How are they monitored? What's that process look like? And what's the environment like that they're in? Like, is it yeah. a nice comfortable... This is so interesting, isn't it? <laughs> I'm like, what is going yeah. yeah, so we're leaping ahead in my study. I'm at the stage of manual development at the moment, but the, the setting is really important. Mm. And so is the support that people have during this experience. And I guess that's what distinguishes... Um, a controlled study environment to people who might be exploring these substances in other environments. So people wear a, um, a f- eye mask, people have headphones, they're listening to specifically chosen music, they're in a really safe and um, hopefully comfortable environment that they've been exposed to, so it's familiar to them. And we have two therapists um, there who are really attuned to the experience the whole time to help people feel really safe um, but are not very directive in that mm. experience. So during the actual dosing days, the, psych- the psychotherapy isn't really a huge component of that. It's more about having a- an experience and feeling safe enough to do that. That mm. is kind of interesting. It's so interesting to know because not that I've ever in my whole life ever taken magic mushrooms, so I've got no idea, but theoretically, um, is that that environment, that many hours where you're in a slightly mind out, it's, it's a vulnerable time to be, and I can imagine that going through a lot of intense psychotherapy could be pretty tough. So I hear what you're saying is that there's a bit of a back, that's just in the background. Maybe it's the work afterwards that's almost the as relevant that psychotherapy afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. And look, the experience of the dosing is really unpredictable for people. It's it's different for everybody, but it can be really intense and it can be frightening. Um, and it's we don't actually want to get rid of that confronting experience. It looks like it's a key ingredient for helpful outcomes, but we want people to be supported in that experience afterwards, during and before, because we don't want people traumatised or re-traumatised. We've we've got a couple of minutes left only, but I have a question about the fact that drugs are generally not uh, psychedelic or illicit drugs are not recommended for people who have any kind of history or risk of mental illness. And does that mean there's any kind of a potential conflict or risk in the study? Yeah. Yeah, so... I guess there is this surge of research happening around the world at the moment looking into psychedelics and complex mental health conditions. And um, But psilocybin is a Schedule Nine substance. It's only legally available under clinical trial conditions. And as I say that, I think of my clients who are... Some are well served by the treatments available at the moment and some are desperately seeking new options. And so it's really hard to say, hold on, wait, we're not there yet. 
but I know that it's incredibly important to have rigorous, thorough research so that we can find out if these treatments are effective and even when they become available and safe, then people can take them with confidence. Long-term goal in the pipeline of the uh, study, where would you see this being used in terms of treatment? Is this something that your psychologist or psychiatrist is going to refer out to patients or is this something that people are going to have a limited experience in terms of like um, being hospitalised in a psychiatric ward and those kinds of things? Where do you see this being fitting into our healthcare scape? I'm going to twist your question slightly to say, (laughs) warp it slightly, um, to say that I, you know, body image disturbance is a transdiagnostic symptom, which means it shows up in lots of different eating disorders. But it's also a symptom that's almost so common and pervasive in our society that it's called normative discontent. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hopeful for is that we can, um, in an image obsessed culture, have more powerful treatments to address this. The way that that's going to show up in the future is um, I think it's a, it's a way down the track and it's hard to predict exactly how that's going to happen. Yeah. But I'm hopeful that this has huge potential. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have another? Yeah, I'm wondering what, what's your plan later on in your PhD regarding recruitment and what sort of size cohort are you looking at and, and how's that process going to go? Yeah, so we're really early stages. We're writing the, um, the manual at the moment. We were lucky enough to receive a grant from um, the Australian Eating Disorders Research and Translation Centre and New South Wales Government. And so we're writing that manual. The next stage will be a small open case label study. Um, and we will we'll be recruiting participants in the next, say, 12 to 18 months. And if people are interested in that, then they can look out on the Inside Out Institute for Eating Disorders website, which also has really great resources if people are experiencing these difficulties. So, so listeners, Inside Out, Google Inside Out... Institute for Eating Disorders. Absolutely. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I still have a couple, another question. So we've Great. got time. Yay. So we spoke with Daryl um, just now with his cannabis study about uh, the, the cost of and the difficulty with accessing these uh, marijuana or can, cannabinoid uh, and drug, the medicinal marijuana, and then the, compared to getting it on the street or in their own ways. What's your kind of thoughts or worries with people thinking, well, I'm just going to do this myself or access my own magic mushrooms? Is What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, um, I mean, um, I guess there's two parts to that question is, that come to me for some Accessibility down the track is a future long-term issue and we want to be sure that everybody who needs this can access it. And you can imagine with long dosing days, it's going to be a costly treatment and we need to think about that. Mm. The other side of that is, um, you know, it's, it is an incredibly powerful substance. So it has a great safety profile medically. Um, it's low toxicity, it's low dependency. There are trials happening at the moment for people with late-stage cancer. So it shows that the body can tolerate that in certain circumstances but because it's powerful you know we need to think carefully about who is accessing this substance people with for example a history of psychosis in their family or extended family might be more vulnerable Um, it's also as I said earlier a really confronting powerful challenging experience and I would hope that people have the support to make sense of that experience um, and to ensure that they 
are helped rather than traumatised through that experience. Yeah, I think it's, it speaks volumes in terms of it's not just the, the drug that's doing the work, it's, it's the process of opening up the door to then process that information in a much more functional way with health professionals like yourself and, and, and your team so that it can actually develop and, and progress your um, experience forward. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's not for me to judge how anybody who is desperately seeking options accesses that. But my hope is that people get the support they deserve. Yeah, absolutely. It is 10.58 a.m. It's Sunday morning, Triple R Radiotherapy. And we are wrapping our interview with clinical psychologist Claire Finkelstein, who's been doing an amazing or in the early stages of an amazing, interesting study into magic mushrooms for eating disorders um, and body image. Um, she's given us the website to find out more about that Inside Out Institute. Um, you're here with Cyber Sue, Trainer Wheels, and Miss Perineum. And we've had a great show. Yeah. We yeah. love Girl Team. We, 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 we end up chatting way too long. It's always fun. <laughs> we are. So I hope you had a good show. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight. Oh, it's been great to have you. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the rest of it. We've got the yeah. podcast. You can listen to radio on, on demand. We're, we're everywhere you want us. Yeah. <laughs> you just got to go looking. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it. And that is a wrap. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.